Sure. Thank you. 
Um, God, I pray right now um, that the Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, God. Um, it's so easy for our hearts to be hardened um, by sin and uh, the gospel and the truth of your word fall on deaf ears, God, but I pray that today you would give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and soften our hearts and make us moldable like clay so that you, the potter, might conform us into the image of Christ. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. Sorry about my voice. I got that thing, you know, it's that time of year. Um, my name is Luke. If I've not I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm a teaching and preaching pastor. I'm excited to get to work with you today through a passage. And typically, this is the point of the service where we'll bring somebody up to kind of maybe talk a little bit about how faith interacts with their everyday, their normal, um, so that we could just kind of see how people are walking out this Christian life. I'm going to just talk for a little bit instead today and maybe get you to join me in prayer for just a minute. Um, on a future location for us. So a lot of you know, because you are in and out of some of our partner meetings and our member meetings, one of the things that we're really hoping for as a church is a home, a future home that we could call our own. Um, we spend a tremendous amount of money renting this place, which has been very good for us, but we have a lot of limitations because we meet in a school. And this kind of, what brought it to my mind was our second site, our church plant, Legacy West, they're a tiny church. Um, they're, they're probably the size of some of your comm groups, and they're having a hard time finding a place out there. They're banging from place to place. It's a very big struggle for them. And it's been a struggle for us in the past. Um, I know a lot of people say that whenever you do finally find a home and address um, that you can meet in as a church, that your attendance kind of pops and goes through the roof. It's not even really why we're looking for a place, to be honest with you. I'm sure you do catch some de-churched people and some unchurched people, um, but I think for every person that comes in because you are finally in a church building, you'll probably lose some people that you're there in a church building. <laughs> They're not going to step foot in one. Um, so that's not really a reason that we want to go. We don't even want to go to a place like that um, because it saves us money, although it would save us a lot of money. We want to find a home because it allows us to be hospitable and a good host to the neighborhood there, and it gives us firm footing to launch future works, right? To plant more churches, to revitalize, to kind of stick a flag in the ground and say, this is our home, these are our people, we will always be here. That's really difficult for us to do here in this place. Um, we are always looking for a future home, and occasionally I'll get a text from one of you or an email saying, hey, I just drove by this place and there's a sign in front of it. Or, hey, I heard through the grapevine that this church is leaving or it's shutting down. And, or, hey, I saw this and I thought you might be interested. I am interested, and I chase every single one of those leads down. If there is a thread to pull, I am pulling it. I'm on the phone. I'm trying to wiggle into a room to talk to somebody. Um, so we chase all of those leads down. So if you're doing that, continue to do that. It is helpful. You are not bugging us. Um, but what I thought we could do is pray for not just Legacy Central, but Legacy West. They go back to meeting at D1 in Hardin Valley next week. That will be their first week back there. It's not the most optimal place for them to meet, but it is the best place for them to meet right now. Um, so that's what I'd like to do. 
let's just do that for a moment, and then we'll kick off this passage. But Father, we thank you for being sweet and kind to us. You've given us this place. I love meeting here. This has been good for our church. It's, it's a good season. I know it's hard on our volunteers. I know it's hard on our finances. But God, you've been very sweet. And there's a lot of churches that can't even find a place like this. So we're thankful. We're thankful. And we're even in a part of the city that we, we generally feel called to reach. So we're excited about this. But Lord, what we ask for is that you would give us a permanent home. A place that we can just call our, our own for the next 20, 50, 100 years. And that you would do the same for Legacy West. Lord, I know how many churches struggle to find a home and they bounce around from place to place. And Lord, I just ask that as we've been doing that for seven or eight years, Lord, that we would, we would get a place that we could call our home. Lord, for good reasons, that we could be a good host to the neighbors around that building, to the businesses around that building. Lord, that we could be hospitable to the city in ways that it's very difficult to do so here. That is our heart. That is our culture. Those are our dreams. That is our vision. And we ask the same for Legacy West, Lord. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for being so kind to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good. Thank you. And please be praying for that as, as the weeks and the days go on. Um, hey, listen, if you have a Bible, turn to uh, Matthew 5. That's where we're going to be. By the way, April Fool's Day is tomorrow, if you knew that. When I was an associate pastor, I was talking to my wife about this this morning. When I was an associate pastor in Texas and in Florida, I would take, I would take April 1st off every year, and I would do nothing all day but just prank people on the phone. That's how sophomoric my humor is. I would do that all day, but, but I don't do that anymore. I'm totally grown up and super mature now, okay? So you won't get a call, but if you do get a call from me tomorrow, it's super important. I want you to pick it up, okay? <laughs> all right. Matthew 5, you know, in the, in the late 1990s, um, I was dating and then engaged to my wife. And so what this meant was, is me living in Midland, Texas, I would drive to Lubbock, Texas every weekend. I never missed a weekend in 52 weeks, right? So every Friday, I'd get off of work at around 4, and I would drive 117.5 miles to, to Lubbock, Texas to see her and just spend as much time as I possibly could with her, and I wouldn't get back home until Monday morning around 2 or 3 a.m., and I did that for a year. I wanted to spend as much time as I could, so we would stay out really late on Sunday night. I'd walk her to the door. It's midnight or 12.30, and then I would turn around, and I would just go back home. So needless to say, I'd fall asleep a lot on the road. Don't judge me. I know it's wrong. I'd freak out if my kids did that now, but that's what I did. And the roads in West Texas are engineered to make you fall asleep because there's nothing in the way, so they're all straight. They're wicked straight. There's not a bend. There's not a turn. There's no trees to go around. There's no water to go over, no ponds, no streams, no cities, no nothing, just a straight. In fact, there have been times where I fell asleep and I woke up and I'm still in the right lane. <laughs> there's just nowhere for the car to go. I'll tell you what, this is before rumble strips you know, came to West Texas. So when I was roused awake from veering off of the highway, it was not from a rumble strip. It's from the rocks and the tumbleweeds and maybe a sign or two that I would hit on the side of the road before I was about to enter into the ditch while my, my little 
Ford Escort wagon is fishtailing, and I'd kind of pull it back onto the road, and in that moment, I'm full fight or flight. I mean, I got hands at 10 and 2. I almost died. That's not a fun way to wake up, right? So my eyes are real wide. I am not going to sleep ever again, except for like in 10 more miles, right? Then you slip right back into that road coma, because those roads are so straight. So you start trying things to stay awake, because this was before cell phones. You couldn't talk to anybody, right? It was before Red Bull. It was before monster drinks were in every single service station around. So you learn to try things, hacks, uh, to, to stay awake. Sunflower seeds, that was a big popular one. I went through a small fortune in sunflower seeds. Um, rolling the window down, especially when it's cold, right? Play freeze out, you're all by yourself, you always win, you always lose, but roll down the window and get that car as cold as you can, crank the radio as loud as you possibly can, so, I mean, I've got Run DMC or Def Leppard so loud, I have no more bass in my speakers in that wagon. I would try coffee 10 different ways. I'd put cinnamon red hots down in the coffee. I was even taking Vivarin tablets, which is just, they're caffeine tablets. And I was dropping those in my red hot coffee. And I was just drinking pure caffeine, whatever it took to stay awake, because I did not want to find myself in a ditch. I would do any, except sleep, I would do anything to not fall asleep. My guess is that a ton of us in here have said over and over again, I'm never gonna do that thing again. I'm never gonna do that thing again, but yet we return to that same thing over and over again usually when the pain wears off, or the shock wears off, the fight or flight wears off, the shame lifts from us, and we almost forget what it felt like to kind of go off the road. We might have found ourselves wide awake from a close call, but eventually we find ourselves back in that road coma. And this is how it can be when we try to defeat something like anger, or lust, or toxic fear and anxiety, a need for approval, Sometimes we will try the equivalent of eating sunflower seeds or cranking Def Leppard just to make ourselves do something that's not really touching the problem. It's not really affecting us where we need to be affected. We take external hacks and behavioral strategies that don't really penetrate and touch the real problem, which is in the heart. And this is why some of us will improve our behavior for a minute or even a month but then we go back to that thing that we used to do again because it's not a behavior issue, it's a heart issue. The heart is unchanged. So we began a series last week on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most dissected sermon. And what he does is he talks about how the kingdom, the gospel, reshapes us to fit in the kingdom. We're kingdom people. We're shaped differently, right? The gospel reforms us. And it doesn't just reshape and reform us so we fit into heaven better. It reshapes and reforms us so we touch money differently. And so our eyes have a different understanding of purity. And we don't confuse things like reconciliation and retaliation. It teaches us how to and reforms how we see anxiety or marriage or divorce. It touches everything, our entire life. So last week we looked at how it is so difficult to be a distinct people, distinct from where we came from and distinct from the surroundings that we find ourselves in today. And Jesus is going to pick up where he left off, basically. This is in Matthew 5, and we're going to grab it in verse 17 and just read a few verses. And this is going to be the word of the Lord for us. You're going to see Christ more clearly today 
And I think it's going to be very helpful for some of you today. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Up until this point in Jesus' discourse with the multitudes by that hill in Capernaum, up until this point, he hadn't even mentioned the law in front of all the religious people. This is the first time he's bringing it up. I mean, I want you to imagine that because we hear news through the filter of what affects us the most, right? Which is why when I was in high school, I didn't care about what the interest rate was and is why now I don't care what the Kardashians are up to. We hear the news according to the filter that we carry, what affects us, what makes sense to us. And here, Jesus is doing this thing of bending their ears. He's hitting a topic that is important to them. I mean, after all, the Law and the Prophets, and when it talks about the Law and the Prophets, it's realistically talking about the Old Testament. That's just their way of saying Old Testament. But whenever he is touching the Law and the Prophets, he's touching the centerpiece of their culture. This is the cornerstone of who they were as a people, their very identity. It, it defined how they structured their family. It defined what they put their hopes in and everything in between. So their big question in this moment, even though it might have been an unspoken question, was, all right, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then how am I supposed to obey now? What does obeying the law and the prophets look like now? I think that's a 2019 question as well. What is your attitude towards the law and the Old Testament? What do you think about it? Honestly. He comes on strong and says, I did not come to abolish all of that. Did they want him to? It's interesting that he starts off that way. Do you think they wanted him to abolish all of that? I think they did. We do. We want him to abolish all that makes us feel uncomfortable or confused or inconvenienced. We would love to, for him to take all of that stuff and just kind of shatter it, just kind of carry it away. By the way, that's why people in the city will say things like they like Jesus but not the church because in the church they see rules and commands and laws but in Jesus they see love and tolerance and forgiveness even though they don't have a real good understanding of church or Jesus. This is why they say it. But mankind in general hates rules. We hate rules. Currently the NFL playbook has 89 pages of rules. 89 pages. This is what's fascinating to me. In every NFL game, there's an average of 13 penalties, all right? That's 13 times one of the seven officials reaches back and grabs a flag and throws that, okay? That's just the ones they feel like throwing the flag on. You know there's a billion others that they're not calling or that they don't see, but we're talking about 13 of those a game. Now, out of 60 minutes of game time, that ball is only moving for 11 of those minutes. The ball is in motion for 11 minutes, which means that someone is breaking a rule and getting busted for it every 50 seconds, all right? And yet we watch the game and we think there's too many dumb rules. 
Too many dumb rules in this thing. They need to start taking the rules out. And yet someone's always getting busted for breaking one of them. The Jewish nation, 613 rules and laws and commands. 613 thou shalt and thou shalt nots in the Old Testament. And every single Jew that was listening to Jesus talk about this understands how the sacrificial system works because that's what they grew up in, right? They knew that if they broke a rule, it wasn't that a flag got thrown, they'd have to take like an ox and a pigeon or something and go to the high priest and blood would have to be shed to cleanse their sins. But here's the thing, they kept breaking rules. They couldn't quit doing it. So they'd have to go back the next week or the next month. They'd have to keep going back. They still breaking rules, they still have to have blood shed, right? It's kind of odd when you think about it. Can you imagine yourself? You're leaving a place like the temple, right? You, you came with a couple animals. You don't have them anymore, right? They've bled out. You're clean now. But you look at the high priest, and you say, we'll see you next week, Bob. See you again. See you when we see you. See you on the flip side. And then along comes Jesus. So yeah, they wanted him to shatter all those commands. Unless... And this is a big unless, unless they use these laws to look good and feel better than other people, like the Pharisees. They didn't want him to shatter the laws. They wanted to shatter Jesus, right? They would abuse the law. And the law was a gift. If you're not a, maybe sure of why the Mosaic law is even in the Bible, God gave that as a gift to govern Jewish society as it functioned as a nation state, Right? It led everyone. Anyone that lived within its boundaries, it led. Whether or not their hearts had been transformed by God, because there was no separation of church or state back then. Which should explain why you read some of the things you read. People get a little confused, for instance, when it comes to divorce. Because you will see Pharisees and scribes come up to Jesus and say, Oh yeah? Oh yeah? Smart guy? What about divorce? It says that Moses told us all you had to do is just write a certificate of divorce and then you could, you could just send your wife right out the door. Basically, you just fire something off the printer that says, I divorce you, here you go, you're gone. Moses said we could do that, what do you say? And Jesus said, yeah, but that's because of your hardness of heart. That's because of your hardness of heart that that was done. But God had something different in mind. And then he goes on to discuss the purpose of marriage. Mosaic law had to make provision for people whose hearts were hard, people who didn't care about marriage, people who didn't understand nor give a rip about God's dreams and hopes for marriage. So Jesus comes along and he says, listen to me clearly until everything is over, nothing falls off the law books, not a dot or an iota, not a hyphen or a colon. That's pretty much what that means. Little punctuation marks, nothing shifts. Which if you're a student of the Bible or you're growing in the Bible, that's got to provoke the question, well, then what do we do with some of these crazy laws we find? I mean, just try muddying your way through the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. How do you know what to do with any of that, right? And I agree. By themselves, a lot of that stuff might feel a little bit inappropriate today, like stoning your misbehaving kids. Some of you are like, it says that in the Bible? You could do that? You can't do it. Don't stone your kids. Don't throw any rocks at your kids. But back then, you'll find it in Deuteronomy. Or not wearing clothing made up of two different fabrics. No more Nike socks, no more yoga pants, nothing like that. You couldn't do that. 
How do we know that? Says it in Leviticus. But Jesus comes along and he says, nothing budges. None of that changes. None of that is deleted. So how do we take these two ideas? Idea one, that the Old Testament is good and beautiful and enduring and God-breathed. And then over here, the fact that we don't do everything that is written in the Old Testament. We don't follow all 613 commands today. I mean, how have you handled that? Personally, how have you calibrated what you do and don't do from the Old Testament? Just what feels normal? What feels modern? I mean, this is their unspoken question. I got to say, it's a lot of people's today as well. So Jesus answers it for us, and he says, this is how you interpret the Old Testament. Through me. Through me. I have fulfilled it. I put the Old Testament in its rightful place. I take the law and the prophets, and I make it brilliant and gleaming and spectacular and visible to all mankind. Because hear me up front, Jesus loves the Old Testament. He's not embarrassed about it. He's a fan. He's not coming along to try to explain away his angry, temperamental father. He's not trying to upgrade the law because we're all so modern now. We're just a much more civil people now. That's not what he's doing either. He actually fulfills this law. There's a fascinating passage in Luke. You can actually stay where you're at right now. And you've read this. If you're a student of the Bible, you've probably cruised through this maybe once or twice. Luke 4.17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, him being Jesus, who unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Fascinating. This is fascinating because originally everything spun around the orbit of the law and the prophets. And now he says, I'm the axis. Everything spins around me. Everything spins around me. This is what he does not say. Jesus does not hand back the scroll to the attendant and then sit down and say, well, listen, fellas, I mean, Isaiah was almost right. I mean, he did the best he could with what he have. I mean, let's face it. But I'm here now. So you can just delete that stuff. You could just retire Isaiah. Everybody tear it out of your Bible right now. We're going to throw it in the campfire. No more Isaiah because I'm here. Doesn't do that. Doesn't do that at all. Instead, he says, listen, this is an awesome text. It's been awesome for 700 years. It's been helpful to train us, to equip us, to love us, to minister to us. It's always had a glimmer. Now it glimmers differently. Now it looks different. But even Isaiah would be fascinated and content and satisfied to see Jesus say, it's fulfilled in me. That's what's happening. So just to be painfully clear, Jesus does not delete the law. He's just not leaving it unedited either. He is carrying the law to its intended goal and purpose. He's fulfilling it. He's fulfilling it. Which is why Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture. That, that's Leviticus. That's Deuteronomy. That's Exodus. That's all the weird stuff. Okay? 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, even Isaiah. This is important for us in this century. It's important for us in 2019 because I I hear something a lot, and that is that the only time an Old Testament law applies to us today as if it's repeated in the New Testament. I don't know where we get that. Like there's a redundancy clause. And the only time you should ever even pay attention to the Old Testament is if it sticks its head up in the New Testament. Wrong, wrong. That's not how you read the Bible. I don't know where we get that. All of the Old Testament remains relevant for us. It's not like fiber in your diet where you just kind of munch through it because you're just supposed to. It's all relevant. It connects to our life, but it needs to be interpreted correctly. Correctly, and that is through the person of Jesus. Anything you read on the Sabbath in the Old Testament moves through the person of Jesus. When you read about tattoos and food laws and feasts and money, read it through the portal and the person of Jesus. That's how we rightly interpret the Old Testament. And when I see people getting weird with the Old Testament, it's, it's here. Because if you handle it wrong, Jesus is just a rock star in the New Testament, but he's not the hero of the entire council. Again, wrong, wrong, wrong. Don't read your Bible that way. He is the hero of the entire council of the Word of God, not a character in the New Testament. He brings the entire council into focus, and we get to see God is glorious through all of it. That's why I said a couple weeks ago we read our Bible backwards here. We start with a bloody cross and an empty tomb, and we work our way out from there because that's what makes sense of Deuteronomy. That's what helps us understand what Leviticus is talking about. That's what helps us take Exodus and connect it to today. To today. Or else, if we don't, we just end up being weird with the Old Testament, doing weird, dorky things, living a dorky life, not even knowing why we do what we do. We just do it because everyone else around us is doing it, and our pastor said it was okay. I mean, consider why we don't do sacrifices anymore. It sounds like, well, of course, Luke, we don't do sacrifices anymore. Why not? They did back then. There's entire chunks of the Bible written on how to carry out a proper sacrifice. When to bring what? How often to do it? Entire chunks of the Bible. How is that profitable today? Should we still do sacrifices? I mean, if you're not pushing that passage through the person of Jesus, you kind of have to, don't you? But Christ is the last sacrifice, the spotless lamb. He's the last high priest that doesn't just offer up a sacrifice, but offers himself up as the last sacrifice. That's why we don't do sacrifices, right? Yet, we still don't lie, cheat, and steal. We still follow the Ten Commandments, and we're allowed to wear polyester blends, and we don't throw rocks at our toddlers, right? I mean, there's continuity, and there's discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but you're not going to know which is which unless you read and interpret everything through the person of Jesus, right? So when you read the Old Testament, ask, what does this passage tell me about Jesus? How do I get to Jesus from this? How does Jesus fulfill this passage? That's how you correctly work your way through the Old Testament, right? That's how that works. But here's the thing. We have a problem. Our problem is, is we're great at changing iotas and removing dots in commands that do apply to us today. Not because Jesus has fulfilled them, but because 
they're very inconvenient for us. The demands of our flesh kind of override our desire for holiness. But God is serious about his commands. He's serious about his commands. He's serious about holiness. If you are choosing to take a command of God that is applicable for you today, and you're like, nah, I don't know about that one. It's not like he looks at you and says, you know what, totally cool. I'm not a big fan of that one either. You know what I'm saying? And it's hard. I mean, it was a hard day today, wasn't it? I get it. I know your heart. Hey, and there's grace anyway. Jesus, right? Don't worry about it. It's not hurting anyone else. Do whatever you want. It's not what's going on. This is one of the strongest passages. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is one of the strongest passages in your Bible pointing to the glory of the Word of God. He breathed and inspired this Word, even to the last detail, even to the last accent, even to the last hyphen. And he did that knowing all the stuff you were going to deal with today. So when he speaks on marriage, and we're going to get into that in some of the future sermons, as he speaks on marriage, he knew about what we would do to marriage today. He knew that. He knew that we would redefine it. When he talks to us about drunkenness, he knows about prescription meds. He knows about weed. He knows about all of this. It's not like social media is beyond him. It escapes him. Last week we looked at that and said our temptation to think that God cannot keep up with our times is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, right? Where anything that is old is outdated and everything that is newer is obviously truer, right? So if you're disinclined to follow the commands because they sound harsh to you or they're difficult or they're inconvenient or they're old, Jesus says, go ahead, you'll be considered the least in the kingdom, but what does it even mean, right? By the way, that's not talking about heaven. That's not talking about after this world. It's not talking about that. It doesn't speak of life after death. Like if you're lousy with holiness today, then your mansion in heaven is going to be smaller. Or you're going to have a dunce cap on. Everyone's going to know that's, that moron didn't follow rules right there. That's not how heaven works, right? It's not going to be any shame there waiting for you. Because Jesus said the kingdom is at hand when? now. It's here. It's here. So what he's saying is, is the more you loosen your grip on the commands of God, the more lax you are with holiness, the more you forfeit the joy that Christ came to hand to you. That's what he means when he says that, when he's speaking that, because the most joyful place you could be in, friends, listen, the most joyful place you can find yourself in is being satisfied and content in God, because that is where he is most glorified in you. That's why you find David in the Psalms saying, the commands of God, it's like honey to my lips. Man, no one says that. No one says that all these, all these rules are like honey to my lips. But David was content. He had a changed heart. He was satisfied in God. And God was glorified in David for that. So here's a question. Does your life show that there are iotas and dots that don't matter to you? Because if you're lax with your holiness, what you need to know is that when you choose to follow certain commands because they're inconvenient, you are teaching others to do the same. You are teaching others to do the same. You might not be teaching like I'm teaching up here, but that's not how we really teach, though, is it? We don't really teach like this. We teach by how we live our life, 
our 24-7 is the best instructor of others because we're all impressionable with how we live our life and how we pick up things. I mean, that's why you change context, you change personalities, because we're highly influenced by whatever puddle we find ourselves in that time, which is why you can go from a business meeting where you act very professional, or a, a dental office where you act professional, and then you get in the car with your friends that night, and you have contests on farting and burping, right? Different context. And if you don't have contests on farting with your friends, you need to get some better friends. <laughs> Build your friendship out. We change. Why? Because we lead each other. It doesn't take very long for me to go seventh grade humor. I can get there really fast if I'm around certain people, but I can get professional just like that because I'm influenced by the people around me. So are you. So are you. That's also why your kids pick up what you do far faster than they pick up what you say. And that's how you grew up as well. That's how you grew up. That's how I grew up. Now occasionally, occasionally, when God is sweet, he shows us when we have grown loose in our holiness. We'll call it a rumble strip on the side of the highway. Okay? That's what we'll call it for whenever you get sleepy. When we kind of let go and don't pursue holiness. I had a favorite movie in college. It was Tommy Boy. I thought it was the best movie in the world, you know. <laughs> it was loaded with freshman humor, which was okay because I was a freshman in college, but... I quoted it like it was a second language. I thought it was the greatest movie. I thought it was hilarious. And I remember maybe a couple years later coming home, spending time with mom and dad, and I saw that it was coming on TV. They saw it too. I watched them deliberate on whether they were going to watch Tommy Boy or not because they'd never seen it before. And I said, you've never seen that before? It's the best. I'm going to sit down and watch it with you. We're all going to watch Tommy Boy. I won't take no for an answer. Let me tell you, that was the longest one hour and 37 minutes in my entire life. It felt like nine hours. I kept thinking, that was in there? I don't remember that being in there. <laughs> Why? Why was it so obvious there and not earlier? Because there was a perceived innocence in the room. There was a perceived purity in the room, and I felt exposed for what I took joy in, right? Not like my parents were totally pure and innocent, but everything that I would laugh at was on display. My handle on holiness was on display. This has happened to you, right? Music in the car, hearing your middle school anthem, reminiscing, start ripping out the lyrics like you never forgot them, and then you hear the words coming out of your mouth, and you're like, what? I used to rock out to this. This used to be it. I don't know that I could sing this anymore. Not in front of my kids anyway, right? That's a rumble strip. Or you get a giving receipt at the end of the year, a charitable giving receipt, and you swore up and down that you were far more sacrificial and generous with your funds. But then when you see the numbers on paper, they don't lie, and you feel exposed. Right? Rumble strip. Or you're in a counseling session with your spouse, or your, your fiance, or maybe it's a pastor that sits down with you, and your significant other throws you under the bus for just a moment, right? It was mean, but it's true what they said. And here's the thing, that pastor or counselor heard the whole thing, and you feel exposed. Like, oh, I guess I did say that. Ugh. It's a rumble strip. It's a rumble strip. Or if your kids say something not awesome in front of other people, and you know that they know that it came out of your mouth long before it came out of theirs. It's a rumble strip. In that process, you realize, man, I've gotten calloused. 
I've gotten calloused. And here's the thing about calluses. They didn't get there quickly. It took time to build those. And then Jesus cranks the heat up a little bit more on this passage, and he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, friends, this is a terrifying passage. That's a, that's a frightening piece of Scripture right there. Because these guys, these scribes and Pharisees, <laughs> they were the best of the best when it came to external behavior. Nobody beats the... Even today, nobody... They tithed off of their spices. I don't even know where our spices are in our house. They figured out a way to take everything and give a tenth of it to the church. They, if they were alive today, they would figure out how to give... 10% of their Chipotle to the church or 10% of their Netflix to the church. None of that even makes sense and they'd figure out a way to do it. If there was a point system or a game between them and us on external behavior, we would get hosed. That's how good they were. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, you'll need to be better than that. You'll need to be superior to that. Your righteousness will be superior to that if you're going to have anything to do with the kingdom of God which is him basically saying, this is why you need me. This is why I'm here. He is the supreme righteousness. That's who he is. And Jesus not only is that, he comes to change how the score is kept. You see, back then, they had an ability to just kind of behave. And the more they behaved and the more they performed, the more points they would get in their head. And of course, they could look at their own life and see how valuable they were, but they were also judging you too, by the way, to see if they were better than you. And this is how it went. And with 613 laws, lots of opportunities to keep score because they would even add laws to those laws. We do the same thing today. We do the same thing today, which is why you measure yourself based on your intentions, but you measure other people based on their actions, right? Driving down the interstate, you blow out some cuss words in your heart, of course, because you'd never say them out loud all alone in your car, right? But in your heart, you're cussing, tailgating, and then you get in front of them and you brake check them a little bit because you're extra mad. And that's okay because Jesus knows your heart. But then when you see your neighbor who smells like weed, always leaves their trash can out one day later than they should, living with someone they're not married to, you're better than them, right? I mean, come on, they don't even go to church probably, right? You're better than them. We do the same thing. We do the same thing that they did. That's why we need this passage today. Jesus tears this system down. He doesn't delete 613 laws. He just changes how they operate for us. Because Jesus answers the demands for every single law. Tempted to break them all, perfect in all of them, right? Not only that, he took his perfect record of obedience, perfect perfect record of obedience and then he hands it to me but my hands are full I've got a, a big load of my mistakes and broken rules my hands are full so he takes those off of my hands and he holds my garbage close to him so that I could hold his righteousness close to me it's the divine trade it's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin no sin no sin so that in him we, mean, we might become the righteousness of God, as if we never failed in any of those laws, inside or out. Man, I break laws all the time. I'm always breaking laws. I break my own rules. So do you. 
How are those New Year's resolutions going? We can't even follow our own set of laws and commands and statutes. But I no longer face the penalty for all of these broken laws before a holy God because Jesus does not just fulfill that. He fulfills the demand, the punishment of that as well. So God's glory is not going to be found in how awesome you execute all of these laws. His glory is going to be found in how poorly you perform and yet how much he loves you and how much you enjoy that love. How much you enjoy that love. God is glorified when with a changed heart, not just trying to add on some external hacks, but with a changed heart, you're not driven to obey, you're drawn to it, like David, where it is honey to our lips. When Jesus says to be part of the kingdom of God will take a superior righteousness, he is saying he is that righteousness. It's not being perfect with all the rules and laws. It's loving our Savior who was, the one who fulfilled them. Because changing your behavior, it's not going to change your heart. Any more than me cranking the window down and drinking coffee is going to make me less tired. It's not going to do it. What we need is a new heart. We looked at this last week, this passage in Ezekiel 11. God speaking. And he says, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And here we are, people with changed hearts, free to live a holy life. Free to live a holy life. Free to take holiness seriously. So here's a question. Where are you relaxed in your grip on holiness? Where are you relaxed? Are you plowing through a rumble strip in the last season or so where you've seen, man, I've gotten calloused? Is that happening for you? Entire books and sermon series are devoted to this topic. I'm going to give you one application that I find to be helpful. Okay? Find environments that shape your holiness. They're going to have other people in them because it doesn't happen in isolation doesn't happen in isolation. Being isolated is not going to help you here when it comes to being holier or even seeing where you're hitting a rumble strip, right? I think one of the things I've noticed over 22 years of doing this and nine years of being here is hearing families say, good families, Jesus-loving families saying, we're having a hard time finding a community group. We're having a hard time finding a missional community. We're having a hard time finding um, a small group, a life group, a cell group, a home group. We're having a hard time. We've been here for nine months, a year. We're still having a hard time. Listen, here's the thing, just a quick warning. If you have a hard time finding a group or a smaller environment with people in it, in a church that's got eight, nine, or 10 of those groups, you're gonna have just as hard of a time finding one in a church that's got 800 of those groups. Because the problem isn't the number of the groups. The problem isn't the groups at all. It's just that that environment, the one that has other people, the one that won't let you be isolated, that environment, when it comes to how it grinds on our holiness and our sense of holiness, it's not always comfortable. It's not always comfortable. I get it. It's inconvenience, a deep sacrifice. But as great as the Sunday gathering is, and I'm a big fan of the Sunday gathering, 
As awesome as it is to come and sing with you and take communion and celebrate and get to see your smiling faces, God does his best work in small groups. God does his best group or his best work in small groups. So if we live as if community is a command and a value for other people, but it's not a command for us, we're changing dots and iotas. We're choosing not to follow that because it's inconvenient. It's hard. It requires sacrifice. It's uncomfortable. That's all we're doing. Don't fool yourself. It's not because you haven't found the right group. So, living in tight proximity with others, that's how we teach each other. I see very little. I have a lot of blind spots. But when I'm in tight proximity with others, they show me my blind spots. They show me when I'm veering off the road before I even see it sometimes. And then they lead me to the gospel. They don't let me walk out condemned. They preach grace to me, an empowering grace, not to keep sinning, but one to change. It's important for us. Find an environment. Find an environment that shapes your holiness. But if I was to zoom out, because I know we got to get out of the sermon, if we were to zoom out, where are you rolling over rumble strips? Where are you seeing your lack of holiness exposed? The path back to holiness is going to have confession as a big piece of it, where you confess that failure. And it's a scary thing to confess, isn't it? I mean, isn't it just, it's panic-inducing, the idea of confessing something, even out loud, nonetheless, somebody else. Because when you confess something or struggle with confessing something that you're struggling in, it reveals where your God is. Does it not? Right? If I refuse to confess this problem, it's because I really love this thing. And if I turn from this problem, it means i got to give up this thing. But I really love this thing because, after all, God's not that good. And he's not giving me this thing. He's holding me back from this thing. He's oppressing me. He's hurting me. So I'm chasing this thing. Your pursuit of holiness and your, your walk through confession puts you in the place where you establish in your own heart who is really God, who is really God, and who is really good. In our superior righteousness, it is found in Jesus. And when we choose holiness, it will be from a changed heart. Go ahead and stand with me. I need to get out of this. I've gone probably a little long. But I would like to just say, in this time of worship, when we have people up on stage leading us, and you have an opportunity to go back, if you're a Christian, to take communion, to pray with those around you, to pray with your family, your roommate, is you have this opportunity to interact with God. You have an invitation to confess. Just confess where you've been lax, where you've been loose with holiness. Some of you, you were just exhausted from secret sin just exhausted from trying to fit 613 laws, even more, right? It's exhausting. Confession is going to loosen sin's grip on your life. And here's what I want you to know. When you feel that sting of conviction, not condemnation. Condemnation says you're an ugly person. Conviction says that's an ugly sin. That's the difference, okay? God doesn't bring condemnation. He's taken it but he does bring conviction because he loves, okay? So when you feel that sting of conviction, that, oh, man, i become a little calloused. Uh, when that happens, 
This is how you're supposed to interpret that. That is God's love to you. The alternative is him just letting you dry up and blow away because he doesn't care. But he loves you. He's excited about you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. And he wants to pull you close and spend time with you because he likes you. That's how you're supposed to interpret that. And no, no sacrifice is needed anymore. Blood has already been shed to the very last drop. So take this as an opportunity to ask the Holy Spirit to give you clear view of what God has done for you and how beautiful it is. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you courage to confess. It takes courage to do that. I'd never downplay that. It's hard. Confession is difficult. Ask the Holy Spirit for courage. Ask Him for passion. And listen, if you're in here and you do not love Jesus, maybe you're learning about Jesus, maybe you're not even sure about Jesus, right? But you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're not sure if you would. You need to know you can get to heaven without Jesus. You just need to be perfect in your righteousness. And there's been only one person that's been able to come and do that, and that is Christ himself. So you really have no way unless you were buried in the image of Christ. But if you're exhausted from following what feels like a million rules, and if you're terrified God doesn't want you because of how dirty you are, if you're weary of religion and performance, God says come. He says come home. Come to him. That's what he says. But the path to him involves laying down your rules, confessing your sins, laying down your pride, putting to death your idols, laying down your world, laying it all down. And yet, he is better. It's the first thing you'll find out. He is better. He's better. He's better than all the things you've been chasing. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so sweet and so kind to us. You could have left all those laws intact. And we would all still be guilty, guilty, guilty. But Lord, you came to finish it all, to be the last sacrifice, to be the last priest. And now everything spins around you. And here we are as a church in your image, as your people, in your family, and we celebrate your good news to us. You are good and sweet and kind to us, and we thank you. We celebrate that, Lord, and then we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us clarity. Just a clear eye. A clear eye of where we're veering away from holiness of how maybe we, we take a look at your Bible and we decide what we will follow and what we will not. Not because you have maybe fulfilled a law, but just because it's just not working for us. And you're holding us back in our minds. Lord, that you would give us clarity of that and that you would give us courage to confess that. Confess it openly. Confess it before you. Maybe confess it with our family and our friends. And the Lord, that you would help us find tight-knit communities, tight proximity, where we could live openly, shamelessly in front of others, where we could see the, the, the scalpels and the tools of community help us become a holier people, where we can grow. And Father, I pray for those in here who are just swerving around you, but yet they're confronted by you. Lord, that you would gift them with faith, that you would, as a gift, give them a faith to trust you, that today you would be reaching hearts, not just in this room, but even in this city, that you would be rescuing 
people out of darkness. You'd be saving people away from the slavery that they choose to sin, and it is a choice. So Father, pray that you would be active today in your Holy Spirit. We love you. You're an incredible God. We're very thankful. And we pray. Amen. So